Father, again, we thank you for your son who came to die in our place. We thank you that through your power, through the Spirit's power, through his own power, that he rose again. That we are able to even recognize the fact that he rose again. And that through that he has conquered all things. Father, thank you that through his death and resurrection we know that he has conquered sin, he has conquered death, he has conquered Satan. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into your family. Father, thank you for conquering sin in our lives. Father, I pray that we would really be able to understand that experientially, to seeing sins that we have literally destroyed because of the cross, because of the gospel. Lord, we're not perfect. We still sin, and yet some are caught in their sin. May they understand that through the gospel, through your power, they can be freed. Father, we also pray for those that might be here today that have never received Christ. May this truly be their day of salvation. May they understand their need, that Christ did it all. He was able to say at the end, it is finished, that salvation is complete, that we only need to believe and receive him. Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts, and whatever our needs are, that they would be met through the gospel. And Father, we just ask now that our minds, our hearts would be in tune with what your word says, that we might be built up. We might be strengthened to walk with you so that we might glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Junior church may be dismissed. If you'd like to turn with me to Psalms chapter 22. Psalms chapter 22. It's a good day. By the way, not just because it's Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day, right? Every day we celebrate what He has done for us through the cross. But again, today we specifically look at the resurrection. On one occasion, Michelangelo turned to his fellow artists in a spirit of great indignation. And this is what he told them. Why do you keep filling gallery after gallery with endless pictures of the one theme of Christ in weakness? Christ upon the cross, and most of all, Christ hanging dead. Why do you concentrate upon that passing episode as if it were the last word, as if the curtain dropped down there on disaster and defeat? That dreaded scene lasted only a few hours, but to the unending eternity, Christ is alive. Christ rules and reigns and triumphs. Amen? Amen. So even though the cross is vitally important because of the redemption of Christ accomplished for us on it, we must not stay there. We must immediately move to the resurrection, because that's where we know that we have victory. By the way, some, you know, I, I read a commentary and they were saying, like, what is more important, the The death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ? That's unanswerable. Because Christ came to die. But it wasn't until the resurrection that we knew that what he did on the cross was accepted by the Father, right? 
But again, he is now glorified. He's in the heavenlies. We must focus on him. Or to say it this way, only a risen Savior can be a real Savior. Only a risen Savior. He's risen indeed. So Christianity is set apart from every other religion because Christianity begins where every other religion ends, and that is with the resurrection. So we want to look at that. I want to give you six results of the resurrection. So when he rose again, what did it prove? And these should build us up in our faith. Because again, a number of things were proved when Christ rose again. The first three are not even found in Psalms 22. So even though you're there, I'm just going to... Because I think they're important enough to just emphasize. When he rose from the dead, this is what it proves. The first one is this. The resurrection gives evidence or proof that the word of God is totally true and reliable. And I'm going to add another word. And sufficient. And sufficient. In other words, when Christ rose from the dead, precisely when and in the way that he had predicted, it pointed to the word of God and said, it is true. It is reliable. It is sufficient. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, it says, and this is Christ speaking to his disciples, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then over in Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes to be killed and to be raised the third day. And over and over again, he predicts, prophesies, that he is going to die and then be raised from the dead. So when he was raised from the dead on the third day, it goes back to the scriptures and we can say categorically and authoritatively that the scriptures are true, it's reliable, and it's sufficient. Number two, the resurrection means that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, as he claimed to be. Now again, over in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Again, the only begotten Son is saying this. So when he rises from the dead, it proves that Christ is indeed the Son of God. Now again, We know that, but again, the resurrection proved that. And as such, he not only is the son of God, (laughs) he's not only God, but he has power over death, he has power over life even, okay? Power over life and death. Again, by the way, when when we think of the uh, resurrection, we think, you know, who raised Christ from the dead? Well, John 10 says, I I take it on myself. But then over in Romans 6, it talks about the, that the Father raised Christ. And then over in Romans 8, it says that the Spirit of God raised Christ. So really, the resurrection of Christ was a Trinity matter. <laughs> By the way, when you look at your salvation, all three have played into that, right? The plan by the Father, Christ did it, the Spirit uh, is the one that brings it to you. So, really, when it comes to the resurrection, salvation, really, all the parts of our salvation, right up to glorification, it's a trinity matter. The whole trinity is working together uh, to see us to the conclusion, which is our glorification. It's just a magnificent truth. But again, getting back to the resurrection, 
proves that Christ is the Son of God and may has power over life and death. And then third, that the resurrection proves that judgment is coming. Because Christ is alive, we know that there's judgment coming. Jesus declared that the Heavenly Father, quote, in John 5.22, has given all judgment to the Son. When, when, when Christ comes back is when... Um, well, first of all, we'll be taken out at the rapture. We'll have our own judgment, the Bema. We looked at that a number of months ago. But then he's going to come and judge the earth. That's what the revelation is all about. I mean, everything is given to the Son. And because the Son is alive, <laughs> judgment is coming. I, I always cringe when I hear somebody use the word, you know, the Lord's name in vain. I mean, I cringe for a lot of reasons. But one of it, I always think to myself, do you not know who you're speaking of? He is the one who's going to judge you. So again, it proves that judgment is coming. Because again, the Son is alive. Not only is the the judgment coming, but the judgment at the end, as far as our judgment, is not um, not only getting reward, but before that, being glorified. We have a we have a new body coming. I think sometimes we try to keep this... I mean, it's good to... I mean, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians. But again, we have to remember that uh, this body will ultimately fail, right? We were talking about this in men's prayer yesterday. No matter how hard you try to keep your body like it was when it was 18, it won't be, okay? And some of you guys are like 14 and 16. You're like, really? Trust me. But, you know, sometimes because of that, because of the, the situation, you know, because we want to get maybe more than we should on this earth, sometimes we don't live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. In other words, um, we're not, we don't abandon ourselves to God. Like, abandon in the sense, Lord, whatever you want to do in my life, I'm okay with it. Because this is just a short time. We might make safe choices non-risky choices because we don't want anything to affect our body. I, I like the illustration of George Patton. He was a 19th century missionary to South Seas. And he, when he was about ready to go uh, on his missionary journey, he met a lot of opposition at home. It wasn't on the field, it was at home. The people of Scotland, uh, he was telling them that he was going to the New Hybrids uh, Islands. By the way, the Islands were infested, if you will, with cannibals. And they, you know, some very well-meaning church members moaned and said it this way. The cannibals, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. Without hesitation, Patton replied, I confess to you that if I can live and die serving my Lord Jesus Christ, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in the great day of resurrection, my body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Boy, that's how we need to live our life, right? No matter what happens, we'll be raised again. It's like Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. And he's not just talking from just spirit. You will actually have a body. The body and the spirit will again be joined at the day of glorification. So again, those are three great truths of the resurrection. They're not found in Psalms, but I wanted to tell them to you because, again, the resurrection means so much to us, right? It proves so much. But now that we're in Psalms, let's, let me give you uh, 
three more results of the resurrection. Three more things that we can see because Christ died and rose again, what's going to happen? Now again, if you were here for communion service on uh, Thursday, you know that we started the, the first part of this Psalms 22. We actually got up to verse 21. Uh, again, this is a messianic psalm. It was written by David. Uh, some would say, well, this is just about David. But if you start looking at the, the specifics of the psalm, you start realizing, wait a second, David may have had some of this experience, but this was about a crucif- or an execution, more specifically a crucifixion, and David did not experience that. So, so though you're going to see David in the psalm, it's really pointing to the greater David, Jesus Christ. In fact, do you remember when the, uh, the, the two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus joins them and it says in Luke twenty four twenty seven, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And I believe that one of the scriptures he used was Psalms 22. And he was like, see, this was me the psalmist was talking about. Again, Psalms 22, the author is David. And David, again, suffered many hard things in his life, but he never experienced anything like this. So again, this is definitely pointing to one greater than David. Well, look at the first verse. We know that our Lord said it himself, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now again, by the, by the point that we get to this in uh, the Gospels, he's already gone through all of his suffering, walked the streets, been scourged, nailed on the cross, uh, ministered to people, darkness fell at 12 o'clock to 3, and just before the third hour, 3 o'clock, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of neglect. This is, where, this is where the atonement took place from 12 to 3. It's where God turned his back on his son. By the way, not his love. But he abandoned and crushed him. And then you say, well, how does that work? I, I don't understand how it all works, but I, I do know that God is love and his love for his son would have remained. But Christ was crushed at the cross as he bore the sins of the world. Well, let's be more specific. As he bore your sin, if you are a believer in him. As he bore Lee Ryan's sin, right? Did, did Jesus Christ bear our specific sins on the cross? Yes. In other words, think about that last sin you did. Maybe two minutes ago. No. That was bore on the cross. The actual sin, sometimes we think just in general terms. Well, it was general, but it was specific as well. So he was crushed on the cross. The wrath and punishment. I'm going to underline the word punishment. For our sin, our guilt, our shame was placed on him. That's why Isaiah 53 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. In fact, Later in the text, it says, The Lord laid on him our iniquity. It's made me stop and think when I've sinned, when I've sinned little or sinned great. You know, Jesus Christ had to pay for that sin. 
There was a greater amount of suffering because he had to pay for that sin. And you say, well, it was an infinite amount of suffering. Yeah, but, but because I sinned. Because you sinned. Each sin had to be taken care of. <clears throat> so again, my God, my God, he's crushed. And then verses 3 to 5, we, we saw that that was really a prayer. It, it really just, again, mixing David with the greater David. Basically, that prayer is, you know what, God, you have been faithful to the fathers. In other words, you are a trustworthy God. Look at the crucifixion, the mockery of the crucifixion, verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip, they shake their head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And again, if you go to Matthew 27, you see the same thing. They ridiculed them. This is, this is a prophetic on Christ on the cross. But look at verse 9 and notice the pronouns. But you are he who took me out of the womb and you made me trust while on my mother's breast and I was cast upon you from birth. And the point is this. Uh, not only could the fathers trust you, but I've trusted you. Even though I'm in great suffering and great hurt, even on the cross, I believe this is Christ on the cross. This is his thinking. But God, I can trust you. God the Father, I can trust you. Which, by the way, is a, is a huge thing for us as we go through this world because he allows suffering and trials and hurts in your life. And the question he asks us is, will you trust me? See, it is so easy to trust the Lord when everything is perfect, right? But you know where faith is, deter- faith is shown, revealed? is when we go through the hard time and we say, Lord, whatever, I trust you. So even in the midst of the greatest of suffering, this is what he's trying to say, even in the midst of the greatest suffering, I believe in the Lord's mind, he, right? This is absolutely true, that he is saying, but Lord, I trust you, even in the midst of the atonement. The Lord Jesus Christ, I trust the Father. Look at 12. Again, this is mixed between David and the greater David. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls. Just, in other words, evil men have, have gaped at me with their mouths. But, but look at verse 14. And all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. And uh, let's go down to verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Why? Because I'm emaciated. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? So again, this is the physical suffering that happened to Christ. But that last statement of verse 21 is very, uh, very, very important. You have answered me. What do you mean? It literally means you have heard me. You've heard the cry of my heart. Remember when he... um, sweat great drops of blood in the garden and... On the cross, cried out, and all the anguish. Let this cup pass from me, but no, your will be done. You have heard me. And, and right there, if you, if you have a pen, you might want to put a line, because that's the climax right there. That's like the bottom. And from here on, there's praise. There's, it's a new direction. In fact, some commentators... Years ago, used to think that there was actually two psalms here. 
That Psalms 22 up to verse 21 was one psalm because it was such a dramatic shift in verse 22. Like somehow they should be not together, they should be separate. But again, this is the climax of the first. There's a turning point. The suffering Savior finds his communion with God restored and begins to celebrate the great victory. You might say, well, that happened at the day of resurrection. No, no, that happened on the cross when he finally gave up the spirit. See, some say, well, he went to hell. Well, he preached. I believe he he proved who he was even to the demons, but there was victory after it is finished. You understand that? There is victory. It was, we had to wait three days to, you know, find out, okay, the resurrection and its proof. But again, think of, think of a father having to now, having punished his son, and now all of a sudden there's, a, there's fellowship restored. Okay? So again, verse 22 is, is, the, um, is, the, uh, is really the resurrection in the sense, I mean, is the, is the new start, okay? I mean, in other words, the, the suffering is done. Billy Graham recounts a story he, he heard when he was traveling in Russia many years ago. After the Bolshevik Revolution, the local communist leader had been sent to a certain village to tell the people the virtues of communism. And to take their minds away from religion. After the communists had harangued them for a long time, he said to the local Christian pastor in a, in a very condescending way. You know, you can kind of picture the... He's been talking about the virtues of communism and now he just looks at this poor guy over here. And Yeah, do you have anything to say? He says, I'll give you five minutes to reply. I don't need five minutes, only five seconds. He went up to the platform and gave the Easter greeting. The Lord is risen. And in unison, the whole group, the Lord is risen indeed. That's exactly right. That's ex- we don't need, it doesn't take a lot. All it takes is the resurrection. Once we know about the resurrection, then everything is uphill, right? Going up from there, right? Glory after glory after glory. So let's look at this passage again. With the idea of the fact that the resurrection happened. It was going to happen. Okay, These are the, the future, you might say it this way, the realities of the resurrection because of the sacrifice of Christ. And you find the first one in verse 22. By the way, in your outline, I actually went A, B, C. Another major point, but actually did D. Because this is a fourth reality, a fourth proof. What, is, what happened because of the resurrection? It's this, the resurrection means that believers, again, believers have a new relationship with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, his Son. What does he say in verse 22? I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. By the way, that word declare and praise are both in the intensive. In the intensive, I will declare. In other words, I'm going to make it known. I'm going to make it crystal clear. This is going to be so obvious. I'm going to put a lot of effort. That's what intensive means. I'm going to declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. This is, again, the greater, Dave. This is, this is uh, Christ speaking of the Father, of all that he has done through him. Now, we know that this is Christ speaking because in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. Now, Hebrews 2, 11 identifies Christ as the speaker, 
And he writes this, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Verse 12 saying, and he quotes this exactly, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praises to you. That's, that's identified as Christ speaking in Hebrews. And he is, he is um, using the same exact terminology of Psalms 22, verse 22. So again, and you know, there's this um, one last part, or a couple parts. One is, I will sing praise to you. Why? Sing praise. Why is Christ singing praises to the Father? Because of deliverance. He's been delivered from death, right? He was, he's been raised again by the glory of the Father. I mean, the, the plan is that Christ would die, but he would be raised from the dead. So it literally means that Christ himself is praising the Father. He has been delivered from the clutches of sin and of death. He has overcome Satan, the power of sin, the power of death. All those things. So he says, I'm going to... But the, the main reason I brought you to this, this point is this. Your name to my brethren. He calls us brothers. Jesus never called the disciples brothers until after the resurrection. Oh, he called them slaves. Doulos. Uh, your version probably says servants in John 15. The literal word is Slave. And he referred to himself as the master. Later on in that verse, he says, I'm no longer going to call you slaves, I'm going to call you friends. By the way, is that a step up? You know. By the way, is it, is it good that we are also called slaves of Christ in the New Testament? Is that a good identification? Is that yeah, in fact, that probably is one of the key, if not the key, identities of the Christian, that we are slaves of God. Over and over again, you're going to find the word doulos, referring to us. <coughs> servants of God. We're servants of God. Oh, it's good to be... It, it, is a, it is a high calling to be a slave of God. Now, that doesn't sound right, but that is true. That you have God as your master, because you know what you had before that? You had sin as your master. You had Satan as your master. The only thing that we knew was the world, and that's what we were running towards. And God rescued us from the chains of sin, and now we are chained to righteousness, Romans talks about, right? Slaves of righteousness. There again, that word slaves of righteousness. No, it's, it's good to be a, a slave of God. I say this because God's, <coughs> you know, remember he says, be holy for I am holy? God has rescued me, as Romans says, to be conformed to the image of his Son. I think we forget that sometimes. We think, God rescued me so I don't have to go to hell. Well, it is true that when a person receives Jesus Christ, their sins have been taken care of on the cross. They are forgiven, made part of God's family, and they will not go to hell. Heaven is their destination. But we've been saved for the purpose of conformity to Christ, to be holy like him, and to really accomplish that in our life, we have to become slaves of righteousness. We have to embrace that. That's what I'm trying to say. God wants us to embrace the fact that we have been saved to serve him. To serve him. So anyways, that was a little rabbit trail. We've been called slaves. He said, now I call you friends. But now again, in this text, because of the resurrection, because of the sacrifice was accepted, we are actually called brothers. 
John MacArthur said this, but he never directly referred to his disciples by the title of brethren until after the resurrection. Not until he had paid the price for their salvation did they truly become his spiritual brothers and sisters. The use of the term demonstrates his full identification with mankind in order to provide complete redemption. He is identified with us. He's identifying himself with us. And, and then after the resurrection, you see it all over the place. Eh, I shouldn't say all over A number of times, let's put it that way. In Matthew 28, Jesus said to them, now again, Matthew 28 is after the resurrection. Don't be afraid. Uh, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. So now all of a sudden, it's not slave, it's not friend. All of a sudden, my brothers, part of my family. I have identification with them as part of my family. Uh, John 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Because of the, because of the sacrifice, because of the resurrection, we know now that we are part of God's family. We've been brought right into his family. And First Timothy or First John actually talks about. Now uh, yeah, you don't have to turn. I'll just First John verse three. It says this: that that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And these things we write to you that your joy might be full. And 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 this whole idea of of coming into the family has got to do with fellowship. I. I can fellowship with you. In fact, I was reading a, a, a guy, and I think he is exactly correct. He said, you know, it's incorrect to say that you can fall out of fellowship. Sometimes I think I use that terminology. You know, a sinning brother goes over here while he's out of fellowship. Well, the reality is, is fellowship in that passage is united completely with salvation. The idea being this. You can lose the joy of your salvation, but in reality, you can't lose the fellowship of it. And we're in fellowship, and I'm here, let's say, and this is the triangle of fellowship, and you're here, and as we move towards God, we have tighter fellowship. It's better fellowship, it's more joyous fellowship, but every Christian, whether you're sinning or not, at the very moment, has fellowship. I think that's important. But, but notice that, we, we work together in the body of Christ, we are part of the family, I was thinking about that this week. It's like, wow, you saved me. You placed me into your family. You placed a bunch of other people that are now believers in you into, your, into this family and tell us to get along when we're all sinners. Did you see how hard that is? That's not easy because my expectation of you and your expectation of me is different. And yet because of the power of the resurrection... He calls us all brothers and sisters, right? And then he tells us, by the, by the strength of the Spirit of God, get along, <laughs> glorify me. So he calls them brethren. We're part of the family. That's the first reality because of the resurrection. The, the next one is this. The resurrection established an expanding assembly. An expanding assembly. You see, the first thing in verse 22, again, my brethren, in the midst of the assembly. Now, what is he talking about there? Who, who's the assembly David's referring to? Well, that would be the Jews, right? Look at verse 23. And, 
Uh, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, that's the Jews, glorify him and fear him. And all the offspring of Israel, that's the Jews. For he has not despised and hated the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he, that's God, hidden his face from him, that's Christ. But when he, that's Jesus, cried to him, he heard, that's God. What is his whole point here? This... Um, These people, these brethren, who are the brethren? The brethren are the Jews. By the way, this is very important for the Jews to hear first. Because over in uh, Acts chapter 2, Peter says, and you are the one that crucified him. I mean, that's why even the, I think it was the Roman Catholic Church for years said, you know, Jews were despised, you're not part of. But again, Romans says, to the Jew first. Why? Because our God is gracious. And even the group that rejected their, their king is part of the church. Isn't that great? I don't know what you've done, but there is nothing you can do so great as God rejecting you. Even after salvation, sometimes we do some very pathetic things, right? Very sinful. And I think we forget how, how patient and gracious God is. So the first, the first group, the first phase, as I put on your outline, concerned the Jewish people. See, the principle is this, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16. Remember, at the very beginning of Acts 1.8, Jesus said this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? Well, first of all, let's remember it's power. Because at the very end of this message, it says that we will declare his name to the nations, basically. And every time we hear that as believers, don't you get a little bit antsy? i got to tell someone about the Lord. But remember, he says, I'm going to give you power. This is not your power. This is my power working through you. But he says, you're going to receive power. You're going to be my witnesses, what? In Jerusalem... That's where the Jews are. And Judea and Samaria. And you say, well, the Jews, Jews. Samaria, okay, the Samaritans. Those are half-breeds. And to the end of the earth. This, this, this group of people are going to be expanding. That's why, that's why I use that word. It's for the Jew first, and then it's expanding. Judea, Samaria, to the... Because in a, in a person's mind, first century is like, well... Uh, is this church just going to be basically Israel? No, it's going to be an expanding body of believers. By the way, praise the Lord that it's an expanding body of believers, right? Because we're all the, to the ends of the earth, okay? That's us. So Jesus, though despised by his Jew- Jewish brethren, was not despised by the Father, and his sacrifice was accepted as payment for their sins as well, both the Jews and the Gentiles. He atoned for all those sins. So that's the, uh, the second phrase. I mean, the, the, the second principle is this, that it's a, uh, not just an assembly, but then if you go to verse 25, it says, My praise shall be on, uh, of you in the great assembly. So he uses the same word assembly <clears throat> that he used in uh, verse 22. But now he says it's a great assembly. That's, that's that Acts 1-8 principle. Uh, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Everybody, anybody on this earth can be saved through the blood of Christ. 
It doesn't just include the Gentile, or Jews, it includes the Gentiles. And you see this in verse 27. All the ends of the world, all the families of the nations. Verse 28, he rules over all the nations. He rules over the nations. His sacrifice that we read about up to verse 22 or 21 is going to be able to be applied to any person. The Messiah's people were from the entire world. That's why uh, Galatians chapter 3. What? Male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. You could add rich or poor, any any socioeconomic, any race, if you will. I know there's only one race, but any groups of people. All can find forgiveness through that one sacrifice. But look at C. The last thing is, but not only people living then, but even for future generations. See, basically this. The church will continue. Starts with the Jew, expands out to the Gentiles, but it's not just for the present. It's going to just keep continuing on. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will keep marching forward. And you see that in verse 30, a a posterity or a descendant shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, not just have been born. So the resurrection, because of everything he did in verses 1 to 21, now the psalmist, looking to the greater David, said, first of all, because of this, you are going to be considered my brethren. But number two, because of this, you are also going to be, uh, it's going to be a growing church. If you go to, or just write it down, I can read Hebrews chapter 5, verse um, 7. Speaking of the Lord, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, this is Christ, you know, the, 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 uh, the cries of Gethsemane, the cries on the cross, with vehement cries and tears to him, that's the Father, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. And the, the point, the reason I read that is because he say, was able to save him from death. He could have saved him from death, but he allowed him to die and then raised him again. So again, we have a, a Savior who is not just to the Jew, not just to the Greek, but in the entire world, which is all the rest, you know both present and future. One man wrote this, in the last verses of Psalms, of the the psalmist burst all bounds. So so intent is he on stressing the universal value and world-embracing proclamation of the gospel. He has spoken of the Jew and the Gentile, those who are near and those who are far off. He has embraced the poor, verse 26, and the rich, verse 29. Now he is thinking of untold generations of people down to the very end of time. And when he's thinking of people to the very end of time, I would say this, you and I are included in that number. See, we're right there, those yet born. I believe Jesus was thinking of you and I as he hung on the cross those three hours of darkness. That moment, the thoughts at that very moment of his death was of us. The passage I keep thinking about is um, 
for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What do you mean joy? That was because he had us in mind. He came to redeem. He came to sacrifice himself so that we could be forgiven. If that was the joy that was set before him, both our redemption so that it would glorify the Father, do you think we were in his mind at the moment he was dying? That the moments that he was literally paying for your sins of this last week, do you think we were were in his mind? So again, that's why we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, because he sacrificed himself for us. It just, it just draws me to, to love him so much more. It's, this week has been a, a week of uh, really soul-searching for me. Soul-searching in the sense of, Lord, how intense am I in following you? Or do I take your sacrifice for granted? Do I take your resurrection? Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm headed towards heaven. Or is there an intensity in my heart, in my soul, in your heart, in your soul to say, Lord, I have resurrection power in me. That's Philippians 3. I can live the resurrected life even here because I have resurrection power. And the fact is that you call me brethren, you bring me right into your family, you don't call me just a slave, okay, you guys over here need to stay out in the barn. You know, that's how it used to be, right? A traveler would come along and they wanted some food and the farmer would say, yeah, you can, uh, we'll feed you, and, you know, but you're going to have to stay out in the barn. Oh, man, the Lord... Man, the Lord, <laughs> he brings us right in at the table. That's, that's, are you looking forward to the big feast? I mean, some of you are thinking about the ham, right? How about the marriage supper of the lamb? Finally, the resurrection allows us to proclaim that Christ's salva- or, excuse me, his salvation is complete because his sacrifice was accepted. His salvation is complete. His sacrifice is accepted. <clears throat> the last verse of Psalms 20, uh, of chapter 22, contains these words. Verse 31. The last part, your version says something like this, that, that he has done this. Or as Jesus seems to have understood the sentence in this quotation on the cross, when Jesus said this, it is finished. Now again, I believe when he said, it is finished, he was referring back to verse 31, that last part there. That he has done this. And you're going to see how this plays out. Remember Christ is on the cross, he gets, I believe, the vinegar. It is finished, cries out, gives up his spirit. Some of the last words we hear, or actually the last, for us. It is finished, one word. It is is finished. Atonement is complete. Redemption is complete. In Psalms 22, the the words are linked to the proclamation of what? We'll go up just to to the first part of verse 31. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. Now, 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 do you see the flow here? He's accomplished redemption. And at the very end, the people who believe are going to declare his righteousness to other people who don't believe yet. 
And what are they going to tell these people? That he has done this. What do we declare to people? Those who are unbelievers. This is what we declare to them. And this is what I would declare to you. It is finished. (laughs) What do you mean it is finished? I mean your redemption, your salvation has been purchased. What do you mean? I mean that you are a sinner. And your sin is a great offense to God. And God's wrath, though you do not feel it, is upon you. John chapter 3 says that. And because his wrath is upon you, condemnation is waiting for you. But praise the Lord, he came to this earth, Christ did, to go to the cross. He lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, became our substitute, was, was hurt and maligned and suffered and crucified, But it was those last three hours where atonement was made. Where our sins were placed on him and the wrath of the Father was poured out on the Lord. And those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ receive what he did for them alone. You know, I say alone because a lot of people try to say Jesus plus. But if you receive Christ, Christ alone, in other words, my righteousness are his filthy rags. It's not about works, it's about faith. And you put your faith and trust in Him. What do they need to know? That it is finished. They are secure. It is complete. I found it interesting that that uh, word, uh, (coughs) excuse me, it is finished, was sometimes wrote in the first century on tax receipts. Yes, even in the first century they had taxes. And they would go and they would pay their taxes, right? We see this in Scripture all over the place. Or a few places, like with, you know, Matthew, obviously, tax collector. Anyways, when, when they would pay their taxes, however many shillings or whatever, they would write on that word, teleastomai, I think it was. It's the word. It is finished. In other words, what they were saying was this, paid in full. That's what they were referring to. Paid in full. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and you put your faith and trust in him, you know what's over your entire life? Your sins, every shame, every guilt that you ever did in offense to God, paid in full. So these people, verse 31, they will come and declare his righteousness. This is not Jesus speaking here. See, in verse 22, Jesus is referring to Christ himself. I will declare your name to my brethren. This is Christ's preach. You know, I call you brethren, but now there's a future generations. How many years later for us? 2,000 plus years. And we're going to go. We're going to go with the, the great news and they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be, will be born. And what are they going to tell them? That he has done it. It is finished. Paid in full. You don't have to keep working. <coughs> oh, we, yeah, we work for Christ, not for salvation. We work because we love Him. Ephesians says that's why we were saved for good works, but not to get us saved, but because we are saved. So again, we're going to proclaim that it is finished, that the atonement was reached. The righteous demands of God for sin's punishment had been fully satisfied and the righteousness of God was now able to be freely offered to all those who would believe on him. You know what I find interesting is, because I fall in this too. It's the Romans 1. Because when I talk about righteousness, Romans 1 verse 16. 
It says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. He's talking about the gospel, the good news, the fact that Christ can, can save a person from the penalty of their sins. And he says, I'm not ashamed of that. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Jew first and then the Greek. But then he says this, for in it, the gospel, it is the righteousness of God is revealed. And it, you know, isn't it amazing that we as believers who have been totally forgiven and someday our home, I mean, our home is in heaven. That's our direction. That's where our destination is. Absolutely sure. I mean, look at all the great realities. Then we talk to this unbeliever who, you know, saying this expletive and this expletive, and we start to go like this. Well, I don't know if I want to tell him about the Lord. I'm kind of ashamed. That must just grieve the Lord's heart so much. What are you talking about? This is the power of God. This is what saves a person. This is what removes the wrath from that person. They, don't, they will not have to spend eternity in hell because I have made the sacrifice and you're backing down? The greatest gift ever given and you're kind of shrinking? In John 19 verse 30 when he says, It is finished. He's saying once for all, never to be repeated. The satisfaction of Christ is the only satisfaction for sin. It is so perfect and final that it leaves no liability for sin on the believer. No, there's no more. So there's just, let me just kind of, I guess maybe these would be conclusions, three final points. First of all, we need to proclaim it is finished. That every, for the believer, every punishment for that sin has been placed on Christ. But you say, but wait a second, Hebrews 12 talks about chastisement. Yeah, but wait a second, chastisement is not punishment. Chastisement is a loving father wanting the best for his child, allowing pain into that child's life as a Christian to get him on the path of righteousness to become like Christ. That is not punishment. Never use the word chastisement for the word punishment. When we proclaim it is finished, it is complete. All, all the punishment for that sin was placed on Christ. Because why? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus. Boy, you know that one, don't you? Number two. This is for you. If you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to do it today. You could go home, die. The wrath of God upon you, you would be sent directly to Hades and ultimate judgment, hell. This is for you. Romans 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, you call on the name of the Lord, what? You will be saved. You will be rescued. See, the question might be, well, so what do I have to do? You have to believe. (laughs) Or let me say it in words of Paul. That you have repentance towards God, that's turning away from your sin, and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I am a wicked sinner, and I've tried to earn salvation. I've tried to do it on my own. I see but my righteousness is as filthy rags, as Isaiah says, and I'm turning to you and your sacrifice alone. I remember a story... It was about these two guys. One was a farmer, one was a carpenter. And the, the farmer had a, was a Christian. And he had a really big burden for his carpenter friend. 
kept telling his carpenter friend about salvation of the Lord. But the carpenter friend kept saying, you know, I don't buy it. You're saying that everything is, that he did enough? Like, I don't have to do anything for it? Well, anyways, the farmer had an idea. He needed a gate for his fence. So he asked his carpenter friend, will you make me a nice gate for this fence area? And one day, you know, he finally gets the fence done. He brings it over and, and gets, man, this was a really nice looking gate. And he brings it over and puts it in, you know, between the two posts on the fence line. And boy, this is really nice. And it, it worked out perfect. So the farmer said, you know what, I'm going to invite my carpenter friend to look at his project, you know, because carpenters always like to see the finished product, right? And he comes over here. And uh, the carpenter guy thought it was kind of odd because he had an axe in his hand. And uh, the carpenter said, what do you got the axe for? Uh, yeah, I really like the fence, but and I like the, the gate. But what exactly is the uh, axe for? He said, well, the farmer. You know, I, I like it. I think it's really good, but I think I just need to make a couple adjustments. So with that big axe, he starts hacking at his gate that that guy had just made. And within a couple minutes, the whole thing was completely destroyed. He says this, Why have you just ruined my work? And this is what the guy said. Yes, said this friend, and that is exactly what you are trying to do. You are trying to ruin the work of Christ by your own miserable additions to it. And as the story goes, the guy got saved. Oh, I got it. It's either Christ is enough or, or Christ is nothing. It's either his sacrifice is alone and it's enough, it is finished, paid in full, but if you think it was oh, payment to 98%, I have to do 2% more, then all of a sudden it's no longer able to be applied to you. So again, I ask you, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you received Christ as payment for your sin? And have you received him in this this sense that you believe paid in full? And finally, as verse 31 says, it is to be told. So not only is it finished, not only is it for you, but it is to be told. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. Verse 22, Jesus said he would declare the name of God to his brethren, but this psalm, this last verse of this psalm, closes with the future generations who have believed in Christ being the declarers or the witnesses of his truth. See, that's our task. We are right in verse 31. If you're saved, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're 31. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. What are we going to tell them? That he has done this, that it is finished, that it is paid in full. I, um, I have some of these booklets periodically. I give these out. If you'd like, you can give a donation of a dollar, but it's up to you. By the way, we pay more than that for these, so it's not like we're making any money. But the point is this one. This one says, Jesus, dead or alive, and this is why the cross. And if you want one of them, I would just ask this, though. I'm not giving these to build your library. I'm actually giving these out that you could share them with someone else. So if you just plan on reading it and putting it in your library and never sharing it, I would ask that you leave it because I only have 
maybe 20 or 30 of them. But if you're saying, you know what, I have someone that needs to hear that it's paid in full, and I'd like to use a tool to get that into their hands, then I would encourage you to just come up and get one, okay? Because again, I think it's a very, very good booklet on explaining that Christ is enough. Let me close with one last illustration. Back in 1830, George Wilson was convicted of robbery. Apparently he hurt the guy too because it was uh, the U.S. Postal Service that he beat up, I believe beat up and robbed. And he was actually sentenced to be hanged. Pretty severe. Um, President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for Wilson though. But he refused to accept it. The matter went to the Chief Justice Marshall who concluded that Wilson would have to be executed. And this is what the Chief Justice wrote, quote, A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And I thought, you know, isn't that exactly what John 1 says? But as many as received him, that's Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Application, Christ died, it is sufficient, paid in full, but unless you receive him, (laughs) receive the pardon that's right there, you must be executed. You You must pay for your sin. You must be punished for your sin in hell forever. Why? Because you refused the sacrifice that Christ did on the cross for the punishment of your sin. Either he paid for your sin or you will have to, right? So I trust that today, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you will cry out to him and receive him. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will do verse 31. We will declare his righteousness, what? To the nations. That's what he's referring to, the nations. Be a witnesser for him. Don't back down. Don't be in this, well, I'm just, uh, I, I just get so scared. I'm just so, whoa, wait a second. It's the righteousness of God. You can be forgiven. That's what we proclaim. That's a, that's a, that's a, um, that's a message that we need to be bold to proclaim. And I know I fall in the same thing. You back down, right? But that's a message to be thankful for and boldly proclaimed. Let's stand as we worship him. Amen. (laughs) Trust you'll have a great Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Maybe you'll be around family and friends that need the Lord Jesus. I would encourage you to come up and grab one or two of these booklets. Maybe you can plant some seeds. Uh, Let's bow for prayer. Father, again, thank you for these great truths. Thank you for the reminder of what the resurrection proves. We thank you that we have a sufficient word that is completely true. We thank you that you have brought us into your family, that we now serve you, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God. Father, we thank you for the fact that we serve the King of Kings. He's coming back to judge and to rule over this world. Father, we thank you for the fact that that this body of believers, this universal body of believers is growing that Christ is building his church and the very gates of hell cannot stop it. With all these great truths, help us to be bold. Help us not to be like Paul said of, of being ashamed. Father, we all know a number of people in our sphere of influence. People who do not know you. Maybe even they think they do, but they do not know you. 
And we've just allowed them to just continue down the path of life, hoping someday they might hear the truth. Forgive us for our lack of passion and intensity of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Remind us of the truth that, as Christ said, it is finished, it is complete, it is paid in full. They can have their sins completely forgiven. And Father, I pray that we would be about your business of making disciples, of sharing the good news and bringing people into the kingdom. Lord, again, we know that we cannot save anyone. We know it's only by your Spirit's power that a person can be made alive. And yet help us to do our part of planting the seeds. And help us to do as the scripture says, that we would declare this to those yet even unborn. That it is finished. That it has been accomplished. So Father, please help us to have this burden. It's so easy to just walk away and enjoy family and friends and really forget those who are damned to hell. I pray this day that we might have praise on our hearts. We might enjoy our family. We might have fellowship with them, those who are believers. But again, for those who are unsaved, that we'd have a great burden and want to share and would share. We just ask that we would do this so that this uh, Resurrection Sunday would perhaps even be more unique than all the rest because we have sought to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.